Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Joachim Hannistal is a Norwegian shipping analyst and now a hedge fund manager. He began his career in finance and later started his own shipping research company. This eventually resulted in him joining forces with Cleves and earning him the reputation as one of the world's best shipping analysts, according to Bloomberg. In this episode, we discuss how Joachim found a passion in shipping, how he makes investment decisions based on math, and why he decided to start a new shipping hedge fund and the upcoming opportunities ahead. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Their first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports, as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. Their second mission is to create a completely new way for companies to reach their investors and vice versa, to change the way people look at investor relations. Their initial core product is now available for both iOS and Android, and stay tuned for additional features during the coming year. Some key points, Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets today and plan to add more during the year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can easily do in their app. And they have a lot more in store for the back of half of the year. So make sure to follow them on Twitter at Quarter app. So check out Quarter, spelled Q. U-A-R-T-R. And you can find the links in the description. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. So, first of all, Joachim, thank you so much for taking the time and joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Christopher. It's my pleasure. How early did you find an interest in shipping? Uh, it's a good question. I'm, I, I, won't, I won't say that it was like from childhood, but um, I remember when I became a student at the university, uh, like early 20s. I started investing my, or I started working during the summers and I had some extra money I uh, didn't spend. So I started um, investing in sh- uh, shares, equities in Oslo. And um, some of those companies were uh, shipping companies, um, like uh, Golden Ocean, for instance. So uh, I kind of, I think that was my f- the first, uh, first kind of taste. And what I noticed, I remember especially one company, Green Reefers, it's, uh, it's not listed anymore. It was a reefer company uh, transporting bananas from uh, Costa Rica to Europe and so on. I think it's uh, containerized uh, basically now. But I remember I built my first financial model around that uh, company. And I didn't know anything about uh, Excel or financial modeling. I just started and I noticed that there were some... Uh, uh, information inefficiencies in the market so I could kind of predict their quarter results and make some money so that was fun I didn't think too much about it at the time it was just felt, felt uh, natural to do it but looking back it was quite interesting because that's uh, a lot what I did later on interesting so 
when you first sort of stumbled upon it, was there any particular shipping segment that got you more interested, or was it the whole industry as a whole? No, it was it wasn't just the listed ones in Oslo because they were available through my internet broker. Uh, but I think the industry as a whole, it is it's kind of the um, information inefficiency in the market, uh, and also the possibility to kind of to to predict uh, with a little bit more certainty than uh, other say uh, sectors that kind of caught my interest. If you look at uh, your education after studying in Norway, you decided to go to Australia. Uh, why did you decide that, and how did that affect you? It was um, uh, so. My studies, I started as um, in international relations uh, in in Trondheim. Basically, that was because it was one of the studies with the lowest uh, requirements for grades from uh, from high school. Uh, so I and all my friends went to Trondheim. So I basically didn't have kind of a burning desire to study international relations. Uh, but I ended up in Trondheim and. Uh, I found out then started to invest that uh, international relations are a very interesting uh, subject, but it's not really what I wanted to work with. And that's not where I saw big opportunity. Uh, I, I, I saw more opportunity in studying economics. So I, I shifted and pivoted my bachelor's degree towards more uh, economics. So I ended up with a dual bachelor's degree from Trondheim in international relations and um, and uh, economics and then I wanted to kind of study more economics and I looked at some of the Norwegian schools like um, uh, NHAH and, and uh, some others they had really strict requirements you need to have kind of this subject and this subject and this one to get in uh, so I started doing some of those subjects but then I, I thought I don't really need those kind of subjects. I don't want to, I just want to study economics because this was kind of law, basic law and these kind of things. So I asked my, my girlfriend, now wife, Elizabeth, I asked her kind of, what, what do you want to do? Should we just go abroad or, and she said, yeah, sure. So I ended up, we ended up deciding to go to Australia because I mean, Australia is a cool country. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, uh, this was during the financial crisis, so I basically applied for uh, three different universities down there, maybe four, and uh, I got uh, into everyone, uh, despite, I, th I think at the time I had a C average, so I wasn't too uh, optimistic, but I got into everyone, and I think that was basically because it was the global financial crisis and they needed the Scandinavian money. <laughs> So it's so it's okay to say that it wasn't sort of like a, a master plan from the start. Oh no, not not at all. It was uh, it was uh, laid as 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 we went. <laughs> Perfect. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about shipping today. Um, if you had a task to learn someone to become great at shipping, how would you approach that task? Uh, so uh, uh, we hired. Uh, Peter Mikael Christensen last year uh, to kind of fill my shoes in Cleave Securities. So I've basically been doing the ex exact uh, exercise over the past year now. Uh, so it, it depends a bit on what kind of um, tasks you want to do. But so 
for Peter Mikhail, we are focused a lot on, on the on the company modeling. Uh, that's kind of that's the easiest part, I would say. That's the part that's easiest for most to kind of get their heads around and learn because there's not that much differentiation between analysts in terms of how good they are on the company modeling. Um, the, but the interesting part and, and the part I think is really uh, uh, most exciting is the fundamental research. And that's, um, that's something you, you can uh, learn. Um, but I have to admit that I'm not very willing to learn it <laughs> away because this is where I want to make, uh, this is kind of where I want, I'm going to make my money and it's, it's a foundation for all my kind of success in, in stock picking. So, uh, but that's the key to, to unlocking uh, the, 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 the sector, the shipping sector. But if you, if you look at sort of, if you put hard work on one side and sort of the natural talent on the other side, where do you feel like you have to be in order to be exceptional in understanding shipping? Uh, definitely hard work. Um, at the start of my career, I basically worked uh, 12 hours average. Uh, I'm a little bit, little bit lower now. I have a family now, so I, I can't really work that much. Uh, but the thing is, you really have the passion, right? So if I didn't have a family, I would probably work much more. Um, because whenever I have a spare moment, I, I think about shipping and I, I, I try to I work either in front of the computer or in my head. But I think so hard work, but you do have to be quite talented as well. Um, from my point of view, you need a lot of mathematics. Uh, but I know a lot of uh, people in shipping or there are most people in shipping are not uh, very heavy on mathematics. So. I would say there are two, two, kind of two ways to make it in shipping. Either do the, what I've done, kind of the research mathematic part, or you do the networking part and build relationships and, and go on all these parties and, and kind of build your network. Got you. So maybe another question that is interesting is that what are some of the biggest mistakes or the typical blind spots you see in people sh uh, sort of starting their career in shipping? Uh, I, I wouldn't say shipping so much. I was rather focused on finance as a whole. I think a lot of people, um, young students, maybe have some illusions to, to kind of expecting to get into finance and, and it's going to be all fun and, and, and glory. But uh, it's, it's a lot of hard work and, and usually it takes at least three years before you kind of see any, any any monetary reward for all that work so the first i would say three years it's it's uh it's hard work and not that much paid uh but then it's it's so you get all the rewards afterwards so it's it's definitely worth the time uh and uh, unfortunately there are some uh, some some uh, strong hierarchy in finance uh, more than you would see other places in norway so that could be uh, quite tough for, for a lot of uh, uh, young people coming into the industry. Makes sense. Can you take us back to the time you decided to start your own research platform in shipping? Sort of what was the idea at the time you had a full-time job already? Can you take us back to that moment? Sure. So um, uh, I think just quickly I started in Nordea markets as a junior shipping analyst. And then I moved on to Furnace. 
Um, unfortunately, in Furnace, there were some um, some uh, issues with um, the people I worked with. So I ended up uh, resigning my my job, uh, but I didn't have anything to um, any any other job job uh, lined up. So I was quite uh, in the in the woods uh, basically. I rem remember I had this uh, Excel sheet. We were calculating how much runway I had before uh, I, my my mortgage were in in uh, were yeah were in the, were called delinquency or whatever. So I had, but I had a couple of years, so I wasn't too stressed. Uh, but then I applied for a lot of work, uh, and um, it was during uh, it was in two thousand fourteen or late two thousand thirteen. So the oil price uh, were collapsing. Uh, so <clears throat> the oil industry in Norway, everyone was out of work and everyone was kind of looking into finance to see if they could get some work there. So it was a lot of competition. So I ended up in Santander. Um, I was basically responsible for their liquidity portfolio. So it was around 2 billion US in, in uh, investment grade papers. It was a great place to work, great co-workers. Uh, but Coming from shipping, I found that investment grade bonds were not kind of the most exciting thing. Uh, I had to, the main kind of what we were looking at were maturities and, and trying to squeeze a half a basis point out of our investments here and there and giving the Swedish state uh, all our money for a negative 97, 97 basis points. So it was, uh, it was a different uh, ballpark. But the, the good thing was that it, for me, used to working 12 hours a day, now having only to work seven and a half, that gave me a lot of time. So uh, I started uh, in the evening, started uh, my, uh, my own company, Gersemi uh, Research. And I started with a plan, let's say. Let's see, I wanted to continue shipping research. Uh, let's see, I just continued doing what I did before. I have, I'm quite good at programming. So I programmed away about half of the workload I used to have. And I didn't have to talk to any clients. So that was a, a big time saver as well. Uh, and then I started to build, I just wanted to start build track record. I thought to myself, if the track record is bad, I can just remove it afterwards. But it, uh, it turned out to be quite good. So I kept it. Um, uh, and then started with target prices and recommendations, doing all those things and trying to figure out the business model where I can monetize on it. So, so I tried. So, yeah, sorry. No, I, I just uh, wanted to ask. So how did you land sort of the first uh, few clients? Did you build that track record up first and then sort of um, reached out or was it people incoming to you? So the the, the, the kind of the challenge was how to monetize what business model uh, so I tried a lot of different business models so uh, one of the ones I had biggest hopes for were a volume-based retail focused business model so I would basically I thought I could charge maybe 10 20 dollars a month and target the US retail market uh, and then that should be enough for a, a one person uh, shop right? So I remember I had, a, I had, first I gave it away for free. So I built a, a list. And then I remember the day I converted that list and I said, now when I need, uh, I, I don't know the number, I think maybe it was 200 a year. And <laughs> I had zero conversions, <laughs> zero. 
Um, <laughs> so that was quite tough. Uh, so, okay, so I just figured out, okay, that didn't work. Back to drawing board. So I basically opened up again for free. Uh, and, and then I thought, okay, so instead of volume, I go for a few large clients. And that's when I kind of came in contact with uh, Cliffs because they had a big, uh, a big uh, equity race they were working on. Uh, and I mean, we were talk talking $300 million to my recollection. And that's, uh, that's very big uh, uh, for most players, especially for uh, a, a smaller player like Cliffs. Um, so they uh, asked me if I could help them. So I basically started working as a consultancy for them. But then I saw a conflict because I was doing this daytime job and then I was starting to earn money uh, in the evenings. And I, I kind of, I didn't really like to do those kind of two jobs simultaneously. So I thought to myself, I needed to kind of get away from the Santander uh, job and, and do this full full time because once you get once you start working with shipping, you kind of get, get it into your blood and you never get it out again. So I knew shipping was the right path for me. And then I met um, Cleves, um, worked as a consultancy, ended up as a full-time uh, job, heading up their research department and kind of building the whole department from scratch. Uh, but it was all, always a thought that I would end up in, in fund management uh, under the Cleves umbrella. I mean, that, that's super interesting. There are several points I would like to, to touch upon, but the one that I would love to start with is basically that this is sort of shows that you through dedication and hard work actually can sort of create your dream job and basically, you know, go out building in public, getting experience. And like, if you're good enough, you know, you will find the, the great opportunities regardless in the end. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that because when I, I, my career path was kind of planned out, I had my plan. I wanted to do a few years in actual research and then go over to fund management. But uh, since I, I, I met some challenges at Fernlis, I basically had to try to find a new path. And uh, exactly so when I were at Santander and started doing the consultancy on, on the, on the, on, in the evenings, I was maybe a bit of Fernley incident sent me back three, four or five years. But then at least I got back on track. And, and, and yeah, you can definitely, if you're kind of passionate and wanted to do something, you... You, you will get there as long as you work hard enough and, and kind of think about the path to get there. 100%. So we touched upon it a bit already, your models. I know that you can't sort of tell us everything, but you can sort of say the philosophy. And as far as I understand, the, it's a very econometric model. Can you sort of, for people who are, aren't that into analyzing and, and such, can you sort of give them like a broad view of how you build those uh, models up and how it maybe differs from more traditional uh, analysts. Sure. Uh, so I think the definition of econometrics is, is uh, defining statistical uh, economy, statistical economics with math or something. So that's basically what I do. So for the beauty with shipping is that you have two years inertia on the supply side. So you basically have transparency on the supply side for the next two years. So then you have uh, one side of the equation, the other side is demand. Uh, and then you put those two together and you get fleet utilization. And fleet utilization decides how much the, the fleet earns. So, uh, so I basically spend 80% of my time on the demand side and the supply side is, is 
it's just given by orbook and some scrapping and cancellations and and, and, and slippage and so on so um that's the kind of the, the the holistic picture and what what kind of baffled me a lot when i got into the industry was how kind of i did econometrics in under in under my master's degree i have a dual master extension with funds management and financial econometrics. But when I got into shipping here in Oslo, I started working at investment banks. I remember one senior analyst told me that you, you, will, you must never tell anyone about econometrics because they, will just, they won't take you seriously if you, if, you, if you talk about that. And I thought to myself, why? This, that's so strange. And then I kind of worked with other senior analysts over the years. And I see their methods, and that this is for me baffling. It's, I remember one guy; he went to the went to the mountains for the weekend, and when he came back to the office on Monday, he had all the numbers up in his head. So he told me to get out my Excel spreadsheet, and we started typing. A Cape size will earn twenty five thousand dollars a day in in twenty twenty one. I'm like, where, where did you get those numbers from? And for me, having numbers that are round and not kind of odd numbers, it tells me that this, these numbers are not calculated. Uh, these numbers are just someone having a feeling about something. So I thought to myself, there's, there's huge opportunity here because people are not doing their, their job correctly in terms of calculating those, the, the supply and demand equation. So that's basically the I started um, started building my models. Uh, I was between jobs, uh, you know, in finance when you, you you tell someone you're going to a competitor, they tell you, okay, that's fine, but you will have to be at home for three months doing nothing. Uh, so uh, that's that's a, it's very nice, but for me, I just want to work. So so I built all my econometric models during that quarantine. Uh, and I brought them with me and, and tried to kind of get people excited. But still, I, I haven't gotten any luck. I, I, but right now, uh, I think I'm just happy that uh, no one else is doing it. And I hope they forget all about it. And I shouldn't really be talking to you about it either. <laughs> Good point. Um, in building these equations, how important is it to sort of become efficient at programming? It's, it's, it's very important, uh, I would say. Uh, the importance in programming is you can either have a big team, uh, do the people management style, uh, a lot of more, a lot more costs, or you can do what I have done: program or uh, program away uh, workload. And and so uh, I would I would say it's I think. That doesn't doesn't really just go for shipping or finance. I think it goes for the the whole world these days. That programming skills and mathematics is is very important if you want to succeed being in the in, uh, in more industrial companies or or in finance. Definitely, we have to talk about the um, the fact that you are ranked the number one shipping analyst by Bloomberg for several years. I think you have outperformed the market by certainly over 300% since 2014 at least. And so, I don't know, the first question is, how do you break down that success? Is it possible to, to sort of give, it, give us an insight into 
how how did you end up becoming that okay so uh for, first of all let me just <clears throat> explain the bloomberg ranking because it's it's a one year moving ranking so i haven't been consistently ranked number one there's been a few periods where i've been down and then up again um just just to, to be clear on that but i have been ranked number one in 2019 2020 and 2021 uh, quite consistently so i'm very very proud of that uh, because it's it's a lot of competition out there but what i do see is um, i think it's two reasons i've been quite successful it's one is the financial econometrics so i've been uh, very uh, quite good at uh, identifying the cyclicality of shipping so it's hard to pinpoint when equities are going to turn sometimes equity price one and a half years ahead sometimes they only price like three to six months ahead but the cyclicality in the earnings and asset prices have been quite accurate accurate on on, on predicting those and i think this, the, the the second factor is <clears throat> if you look at the competition on bloomberg uh tara ratings from other analysts um people need to understand that most analysts uh, or research function is, is, is a support function for corporate finance business. So um, there is, or um, I would say, especially for US analysts, there are very few seller recommendations because the corporate finance department doesn't really, uh, are not really happy with seller recommendations. And of course, it shouldn't be that way at all. Um, um, and I will also add that Norwegian analysts, to me, appear be better at uh, being more pragmatic. And Norwegian investors have more uh, understanding for you not having or uh, a buy recommendation on their company throughout the cycle, because they would rather have an analyst that has better uh, kind of standing uh, in the, in, in, uh, amongst investors. Uh, than an analyst that's just buy, buy, buy and just corporate finance driven. But I think that's <clears throat> uh, one reason why when you have cyclicality, uh, there is, I've been successful in outperforming my peers, but when uh, uh, the past year when everything basically had just gone up, then my differentiation is, is not that, uh, has not that be, been, been that uh, big. Makes sense. So we need to switch gears and obviously talk about the new hedge fund, if we are going to maybe a good place to start is sort of, did you have this idea for a long time? As far as I understand, there has been a lot of clients maybe requested this kind of fund. So in, in your mind, how this just did this process ended up being? Yeah, so <clears throat> I, when I kind of understood my financial econometrics model, uh, we're performing that well, and I was able to outperform the market. I thought I'm, I'm adding a lot of value to my clients, advising them on what they should do. But what I should do with this is manage other people's money directly and my own money using this. Um, so so I think back, back to 2014, I kind of thought I will now just do equity research a couple of years more and then I will transition. Uh, it's like it's, as an equity analyst, you usually go into the industry or you go into fund management. That's kind of two, two usual paths. So that was my plan. And then obviously I was set back a few years. And then when I did Gersemi research, I had clients 
that wanted me to manage their money. And I mean, if I were living in the 90s, I would say, hey, cool, here's my bank account, let's go. But I don't live in the 1990s, unfortunately. Uh, so um, there's all these regulations. I mean, I'm, I'm positive towards regulations because they, they protect uh, investors. But I also quite exhausted uh, after several years how to deal with regulations. And especially when regulations uh, uh, keeps me from doing what I believe is in the investor's best interest, but I have to take other choices because regulations are trying to do something, but not always hitting the mark. Anyways, that's another discussion. Um, so, I mean, when Cleves approached me and I understood their business, I thought, hey, this is, this is nice. They have compliance. Uh, they have sales. Uh, this is basically exactly what I need to plug my research into and then start uh, managing money. So we, we decided first we will focus on corporate finance because we had some really interesting opportunities when I joined Cleves. Uh, and then at the opportune time, we thought, okay, now we will start doing the, the fund management. Uh, so I, I have to be honest, the road has been longer than I had expected. Um, we are now launching a Norwegian structure because um, that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, but we are also working on an Irish uh, structure, uh, <clears throat> which will fit better for uh, international investors. Um, so that's where we are at the moment. And uh, we uh, expect first close on the Norwegian structure uh, within short amount of time. Uh, but my lawyers tells me that I can't really say too much about the details, but I guess everyone can be able to Google uh, Cleves and fund management uh, or asset management. And um, I'm happy to, to, um, to facilitate any request. I haven't gotten a lot of inquiries already without doing any marketing. Uh, and I have people lined up been, which, has, which has been with me for many years. So um, there's, there's a lot of positivity and a good momentum and I see a lot of opportunity in shipping going forward. Sort of in, in a global context, how rare is a shipping hedge fund specifically? Like, of course, in some countries, you can say that shipping is a huge industry. But again, if you look at it in a global context, how rare is a shipping fund in itself? <clears throat> yeah, I haven't seen too many examples of, of a, a kind of the key for to invest in shipping uh, is to have a long short strategy. Um, uh, one can easily say that the easiest way to become a millionaire is to invest $1 billion in shipping because equities tend to go up to, to 1% of uh, the, uh, the, the invested dollar amount over one cycle. Uh, so the challenge is to, uh, to kind of get in at the trough and then, but uh, to divest at the peak. If you don't do that, the, the company is usually bankrupt next cycle or the two, next two cycles. Um, so the, the only way to invest in shipping, in my opinion, is to go long short. Um, the other way is to be long only, but that only kind of you subsidize the freight cost over time. So you basically take your take your money and you give it away to someone else. Um, so yeah. I think um, it, it, it's, it's a no-brainer, the, the structure of the fund. And I haven't seen too many other uh, 
funds structure that way. I've seen, I saw DNB had a long only shipping and oil services fund. Uh, they they were doing that for surprisingly, surprisingly many years. They had a fixed fee structure, not performance. And you can see the asset under management were just going down and down. And uh, I, I, I don't think that's the way to do it. You have to do, you have to have performance fees and low fixed fees. So you align your interests with investors. Uh, you have to invest your own money. Uh, so everything is aligned. So yes, you're constantly thinking about kind of what should I do and be conservative uh, through the cycle and kind of play the long short uh, um, properties of, of shipping because there's so much opportunity and there's it's just incredible opportunity in shipping if you play the cycle right. If you look at finance more broadly, have you been inspired by any other funds or any other types of investors that are nece not necessarily tied to shipping, but has had great success in just finance and, and equities? I often get a question out of, have you had any mentors or inspirations and so on? But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to say uh, yes to that question. I, I My approach has just been sitting in front of the computer, having my spreadsheet up and figure it, figuring it out myself. Uh, I always thought I wanted to kind of see what everyone else is doing it's because I don't want to miss out on any, anything. But for, before I do that, I want to do it myself and then see if my approach is better, worse, and kind of take the best from everyone else. But first, I want to figure it out myself. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I haven't really kind of had any read any books about Warren Buffett that has inspired me or anything. It's basically more about my, my uh, mathematics books that has inspired me, I think, <laughs> and annual reports. <laughs> Interesting. But uh, I mean, uh, you touched upon it earlier, but I, I, w I would just like to, to sort of um, ask this, the same question again, because a lot of the shipping industry right now is going super well, but... As you said, is it sort of when you're setting up this new fund and you look at the timing, is it is it almost easier to outperform the market in down in bad times than in good times? Um, uh, in terms of analyst recommendations, uh, definitely yes. Uh, but in terms of investments, I think one of the hardest things, kind of personally psychologically is to lose money in when everyone else is making money that's that's really tough so if you if you kind of get your short position wrong and and the market is booming that's that's really painful um but i mean in, in terms of going long and short i think it's quite you know it's, it's basically the same um the the problem going short uh, is that when things are going booming if you get fleet utilization towards 100 percent then you can't really calculate how much they're going to earn because it becomes more a pricing differential like how much can they take moving lpg from the us to the far east and if and if the pricing differential is is supportive of two hundred thousand dollars a day they are making two hundred thousand dollars a day and if you are then short uh, that's extremely costly uh, but kind of so but if you if you so you're going short you basically have no downside uh, cap so it's uh, i think it's 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 important to be more prudent going short than and than uh, long uh, that, that's my philosophy so 
I would rather kind of be be hundred percent long when the timing is right for that. But when the timing is right for to go short, I will be a little bit less, uh, uh, a little bit more risk averse. Makes sense. If you look at you touched upon it, but the pressure of managing funds, and obviously with the great track record, etc. How do you think that component plays in sort of the pressure in performing when it's like real money at stake all the time and real skin in the game? Oh, it's uh, I I banished my my own money for a couple of years. It's um, and I managed the, the the big portfolio in Santander. <clears throat> it's uh, you, you don't have to be professional. Uh, I've learned that over the years that when you start investing, you maybe invest maybe one thousand Norwegian kroners. Uh, it can be a very small amount, but you feel feel the pressure, and you're gonna. Kind of stay all day looking at the screen and like, oh no, I lost 2%, what a disastrous day. Uh, but then suddenly you have managed $2 billion and, and it, the, the, the money, the amounts just goes beyond what human mind is able to comprehend. And then it starts getting more uh, more professional uh, approach. So I, I don't have, I, I've been getting used to kind of losing the first 20 percent of a share uh bull run uh, and i'm i don't, I don't have any problems with that as long as i get to the next 20 percent uh you just need to be pragmatic and always doing what's right and that's where i rely on my mathematics because when you try to do the gut feeling it's it's usually usually always goes wrong or 50 50 at best so i gotta rely on my mathematics and just have a professional view and don't let uh, it ruin my day if my portfolio is down 2%. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. If we s- sort of look at um, some forecasting ahead in the future, uh, do you have any ideas that you would like to share now that you think you are very bullish on going forward in specific sectors or specific industries? So even though I kind of changed my hat in September. Uh, I, I think um, my message f- from all the reports we sent out in July and the oil tanker webinar in early September is, is still quite, uh, or some of them are still um, uh, accurate. So for oil tankers, I believe we are seeing the signs in the Arabian Gulf of uh, more uh, activity. And uh, for me, it's such, it seems like such a no-brainer because the, um, the order book is so low, so you have transparency for the next two years. And at the same time, OPEC Plus uh, are, uh, are expected to increase by 400 million barrels, uh, 400,000 barrels a day uh, going forward. Uh, I, I personally think they will have to stop a bit in the first half of 2022. They are, uh, they are uh, communicating that they will just keep on increasing. But regardless, you will have a lot of new oil coming into the market. And you see, I think oil prices topped $80 a barrel today. So obviously, there is demand for more oil in the market. And we already see then the winter market is coming in October, usually, and lasts until February, approximately. And then for dry bulk, I'm getting a bit concerned, I I have to say. So after I kind of uh, changed hats in September, uh, uh, and then I was free, not bound by all this restriction as an analyst in terms of trading. Uh, so I, I actually sold a lot of Gold Notion uh, at 100 crowns plus, uh, 
because more going into first quarter is, is usually low season. And this, uh, this year you have the Beijing Olympics coming in and they want blue skies. It's They want the TV pictures to be perfect. So they have cut the steel production already and they will cut coal consumption. I expect thermal coal will, will be cut. Uh, so you have all these kind of factors pulling the brace going into Q1. And then you have the gas markets, which are just unbelievable, uh, unbelievably strong. It's, it's I, I don't really understand why freight hasn't really started moving yet. Or I, I saw LNG started moving yesterday, so I think we will we are probably in this in the innings. And LPG has started moving uh, over the past few days, days as well. But uh, I mean, to, to move a, a ton of LNG from the US to Far East right now, it's the economics in, in that move is, is uh, immense. Uh, but I mean, we have energy crunch across the world going, or Northern Hemisphere going into the winter right now. So it's really, it's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out. Europe is, is lacking energy, Far East is lacking energy, and the US is lacking energy. So there's no inventories to draw from coal, LNG, or natural gas, and so on. So. I think it will be a bumpy ride for the next six months in terms of uh, electricity prices and so on for people. Uh, but uh, I think it will uh, uh, transpose into freight for uh, for gas as well. On a sort of uh, confidence scale, uh, what part is sort of the hardest thing right now to get your head around in terms of how confident you are of a specific scenario playing out? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I'm I'm a bit uh, I'm a bit surprised on LPG because LPG prices in the US are are so high, so you don't have the arbitrage that you see on LNG. Uh, so I'm I'm looking to to inventories in the US. Uh, I would like to see inventory bills uh, in in the US. Well, I think I think the biggest uncertainty is in my head. Dry bulk is kind of we are extremely high, and for me, I think dry bulk will uh, earnings in dry bulk will collapse into Q1. I think you could see in Cape size earning below below ten thousand dollars a day you know, over the next few months, and now we are around uh, sixty to seventy. So that that if that plays out, that will uh, surprise a lot of people. I think. Uh, but that's just temporary, <clears throat> temporary, and then you don't have any fleet growth in the next two years, so it will just be a temporary dip. But that could be a big opportunity if that plays out. Share prices will likely be taken uh, by surprise by this earnings movement, and I think a lot of generalists, uh, which have been moving into the segment over the past few years, we have seen the capital flows. I think a lot of those guys will think. Oh no! Uh, what's this is just like 2015 all over again. What's what's going on in shipping? We can't invest in this. Too volatile. We just have to get out and take our uh, our uh, our uh, returns. They have made a lot of money already, so uh, that that could easily happen. You see capital out uh, outflow from shipping if in such a scenario. But it's a big uncertainty. Um, big uncertainty. Just a few more questions before we wrap up. If we look a bit more uh, or further ahead, uh, obviously there are new regulations taking place. There is a big concern about, of course, cutting emissions enough. Uh, If you sort of look at maybe on the technology side, 
Are there anything that interests you particularly going forward? Do you see like some big shifts coming moving forward in shipping? Maybe in like a five-year horizon or even 10 years, for, for instance? Yeah, so I think this decade will kind of be the decade of regulations in shipping. And personally, I think it's so it's so it's such a good move that we are finally seeing some real action uh, because obviously we are uh, we have big problems uh, in terms of the climate change and all that. So it's very positive to see the industry taking responsibility and also seeing the IMO and putting in place regulations. Um, it's, it's, we spent, I think we spent maybe three months, uh, more or less, uh, in police, uh, securities and the research department trying to calculate how this will impact shipping. Um, so we looked at the EEXI and the CII, uh, and we did, we took the whole fleet, the global fleet, uh, besides kind of trawlers and, and those small vessels, but basically the whole commercial fleet and try to f- calculate on each vessel how much will this hit. So what we ended up <clears throat> after three months finding out that it was too complex. We needed kind of the technical sheet on each vessel to be able to calculate it correctly. Because whenever we took those calculations and we asked the companies kind of how does it look, we got a different answer. So it was quite um, frustrating. Uh, so for me right now, it seems like a bit black box. How, uh, how this will impact the industry. It will definitely have an impact. And um, this will definitely impact some segments more than others. Um, for instance, older LNG vessels, they don't come out too well in those calculations. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, uh, and it could, what, what is happening is people are not investing in shipping because they are uncertain. So if you buy a, a vessel today, Potentially, that investment, which used to have a 25-year uh, depreciation profile, 25-year life, now suddenly only have 10 years. And then do I have to invest $10 million, take out the engine and, and do all these kind of things? Or So people are not willing to invest in new buildings. And that means the order books stay low. Look at dry bulk. You have in- immense earnings but still the order book stays slow. So that means you could have a decade in shipping without the necessary investments to move uh, goods. That could create challenges for the global supply chains, uh, but definitely could also, in that scenario, you will also have extremely high earnings and cash flows for ship owners. If you look at containers right now, you see, you see that kind of scenario uh, where the supply chains have globally has kind of collapsed a bit and then um that yeah that creates challenges if you only look at the technology and sort of what types of fuel ships are going to be using in the future do you have any any favorite solutions that you're seeing right now yeah i i I honestly don't have it what i do is so i read what other people are, are writing and uh, I'm not that kind of technical uh, in the industrial guy. Uh, so I try to read as much as I can and kind of stay on top of the issue. But uh, uh, it's, it's challenging right now because there's no clear path to kind of zero emission. Uh, all the kind of suggestions like ammonia and so on seems to be 
um, seems to be on the drawing board technically uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, it's too costly to produce that amounts needed and with the current technology. So when I hear politicians always talking about zero emissions, it always seems to talk about like, how will you get there? Now we'll, we will base it on new technology. I mean, but what's the new technology? Now someone will figure out that. I mean, it doesn't seem to be, it's a big concern for me that every politician is responding new technology uh, or we should cut production of oil. It's not kind of, <laughs> neither of those solutions seems to be, uh, to me, to be the, 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 the real solution. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And hopefully we will uh, cut some emissions uh, soon. Very much so. So just a, the final question in terms of the way you are communicating with the shipping people. And I mean, you have a very large following on Twitter, for instance. How important do you feel it has been to sort of share ideas publicly, get feedback on it, being transparent in what you're thinking, being able to get that feedback? Is that something that you feel has been very valuable? So uh, going back to what I talked about earlier, the kind of as a 20-year-old student trying to building financial models and understanding that there was uh, an information uh, asymmetry uh, in, in the market and also information inefficiency, I always thought I should try to do something to balance that and democratize information flow. Because there's so much information sitting in over-the-counter markets at brokers, and that information is priced into the equities. But the retail investors, they only see the share price going up or down. And then maybe at the end of the day or the next day, they understand why that happened. That's what's my position for many years. So I think it's important to, uh, to democratize the information. So that's basically, I would kind of say, idealistic motive behind it. And then obviously, I've used it as a distribution platform as well, building, uh, building clients lists. I mean, here you have free research, but uh, you needed to register your name and email to get that free research. So that's obviously valuable to build those uh, lists of, of people uh, genuinely interested in, in uh, shipping. So that, that kind of list can be used uh, towards other things, so obviously. So that has a lot of value. So I think, and I'm very happy to see that there's so many people globally that's uh, interested in shipping because I'm only tweeting about shipping. There's nothing else. I don't have any kind of political views on Twitter. I don't have any kind of that. It's just shipping. Uh, so that's, that's very uh, nice to see so many people interested. Perfect ending. Joachim, thank you so much for joining. It was a pleasure having you on. Oh, well, my pleasure, Christopher. Uh, very, very nice to be here with you today. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to @chrisvonheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.